Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from AboutMeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here with us today. So I'm very excited to share with you my interview with best-selling author Dan Harris. Dan is an anchorman for ABC's Good Morning America, and last year he wrote the excellent book, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and found self-help that actually works. A true story. Dan has an incredible story, which he tells in this book and which he recounts in the interview today. Now, I completely recommend this book. You won't learn meditation, but you will laugh and you will probably identify with Dan's quest for understanding and insight. This is a great book and Dan as an award-winning journalist, is a world-class storyteller. Today, we talk about the impact of his book, we explore some of the themes in 10% Happier, and we talk about how Dan's become a real champion for meditation. In fact, he's just launched a new meditation course app with a group called The Change Collective, and I'll say more about that at the end of the show and how you can get a special discount for that course. But for now, let's jump into this interview with best-selling author Dan Harris. Dan, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you on here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I have to tell you, I am a huge fan of your book. I'm loving it. I'm about 75% of the way through it. And I can't tell you the last time I read a book and laughed out loud as much as I have from reading 10% Happier. You're a fantastic writer. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm trying to figure out 75% of the way through 10%. Yes. I've always been shitty at math. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I'm where you just start to meet the Marines who are meditating. Ah, okay. Yes. Well, I can assure you there's no big plot twist at the end, but I I, uh, appreciate you reading the book and thank you for your kind words. Uh, Absolutely. And I wanted to congratulate you because, well, one, because it's an awesome read and I've been meditating for over 20 years and I run a meditation website, but I think you're doing a real service with this book. I think with your story, you you just bring people in in a very disarming way. And I think for meditation, it's a real boon. I think you've done a, a real service. And so I'm looking forward to talking about your book. Thanks. You have such an unusual and compelling story. Can you share with everyone, how did you start meditating? What was the catalyst and the journey that got you to the point where you started a regular meditation practice? It's a windy, strange tale. I'll try to truncate it. Yeah. I'm a, one of the anchors on uh, ABC News, as you as you yes. uh, mentioned, and I had a panic attack on, on national television about uh, 11 years ago, 
on Good Morning America. And after that panic attack, you know, I went to a doctor and tried to get to the bottom of it and, and realized that it was caused by some very stupid, mindless behavior in my personal life. I had gotten depressed after spending a lot of time in, in war zones for ABC News and had uh, self-medicated with recreational drugs. Right. Um, and that was what had caused the panic attack, most likely. And uh, so that was a big wake up call. And then something else happened, which was that I was assigned to cover faith and spirituality for ABC News, notwithstanding the fact that I was and am a non-believer. Uh, yeah. And that ultimately put me on the road to reading some self-help books, including a book by Eckhart Tolle mm -hmm. and interviewing Eckhart Tolle and being re getting really interested in this idea that we have a voice in our head that yanks us around and realizing that that voice in my head was the voice that, you know, compelled me to go to war zones without really thinking about the psychological consequences and to get depressed uh, without really knowing it and then to self-medicate. I found Eckhart Tolle uh, and a lot of these self-help folks that I ran into through my job to be interesting, but kind of not helpful and, and a bit frustrating in there you know, on a lot of levels. Yeah. And, uh, ultimately, uh, my wife gave me a book by Mark Epstein, who's Dr. Mark Epstein is a yes probably very familiar to your audience, who is a, a Buddhist uh, psychiatrist. And I realized that the, all the stuff that was most interesting in the self-help that I had read was actually lifted largely without attribution from the Buddha. Mm. Um, so that got me really interested in Buddhism and therefore meditation. And, uh, and here we are. Fantastic. So in the book, you describe one of the episodes in the book you talk about is the experience of going on a nine day meditation retreat and the kind of breakthrough that happened for you on the retreat. Can you speak about that a little bit? What, what happened on that retreat? Cause it was a pivotal, it was a pivotal moment for you. It sounds like. Yeah, it was. I wish I could have it happen again. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that that would be familiar to many meditators. Anybody's been definitely I went on my first long retreat. Well, by some measures, it's a short retreat. If you're, you know, I, I know people yeah. do three year retreats. So, but, but from in my world, a, a 10 day retreat was, um, or nine day retreat, wherever it depends how you measure it, was a really big deal. And uh, the first couple of days of it sucked uncontrollably. It was just <laughs> horrible. You know, I mean, I was a guy who was, I probably was doing at that point in my life 10 to 20 to 25 minutes a day of meditation. So to go into like, all day, every day, sitting and walking was really hard, uh, yeah. which is not uncommon. And on the fourth or fifth day, right as I was just kind of at the point of capitulation, which is the classic, I've later learned, the classic thing in spiritual mm. breakthroughs, the moment of capitulation of stop, I, I, I kind of was going to stop trying uh, so hard. I had a bit of a breakthrough where all of a sudden the meditation got much easier and I was much clearer and it was accompanied by, as I say in the book, a big blast of serotonin and I had mm. 36 of the happiest hours of my life. And, you know, and during that time I was just really sort of right there with everything that was, that was arising and my senses were really clear. I was feeling very sort of open. And after days of sort of mocking the meditation teachers who had introduced us to compassion meditation, I got really into that. And then as with everything in this impermanent universe, uh, it ended. Uh, and I went back to being miserable again and thinking compassion meditation was boring and blah, blah, blah. So, but it was really interesting, sort of open. It was an experience of my mind that I never had before. And, yeah. and that kind of imbues 
a meditator with, and I know this is a loaded word, a lot of faith, by which I don't mean anything metaphysical, right. just sort of a trust that this is a process that has a lot of value and potential. Yeah, and you really, I think, effectively describe that space that opened up between you and the whole mechanical nature of your mind just spewing thoughts. And I thought, you know, it was a really fantastic elaboration on that. And I think the parentheses on that experience was, which this is what I read out loud to my wife, when you were watching people bow to this statue of the Buddha at a certain point before capitulation, when you're feeling that you were like F the Buddha. <laughs> and then you, by the end, you were bowing to the Buddha because you were so moved by that experience. Yes. And then, but then at the end, uh, after the breakthrough, when I was back and feeling like shit again, I continued to bow, but only uh, for the hamstring stretch. Uh, <laughs> right. So I, I go back and forth on the whole bowing to the Buddha thing. But you're right. You know, there is that you can talk about the mechanical nature of the mind. You really do when you fall back into. Or to use the terminology that my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, uses when you settle back into natural awareness, which is yeah. right here, right now, perennially available, completely effortless awareness that we just have as sentient beings when you fall back into that and you see how the mind works just rapid fire constantly knowing things uh knowing uh sensory input having thoughts and knowing that you're having thoughts uh, and you see the craziness of those thoughts and the rapid fire seemingly unrelated nature of these thoughts and the self-centeredness yeah. of these thoughts uh, and then back to the painting your knee or the sound of a bird and it's all just whizzing by you that's a very exhilarating and also it's a it gives you a lot of exhilaration but it gives you a lot of insight into yeah. what the nature of your existence really is totally i i couldn't agree more so you mentioned that you wish you could have this experience again is that you you haven't been able to go on retreat again since then is that right uh no no i've been on retreat since then but i just found you know Sadly, I've only been able to do one long retreat since. Yes, I've done, got it. I've done a bunch of smaller ones. But I found that the whole time I was like hoping for the the sequel. Uh, yes. The, the breakthrough. Like I, I kept on, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but in the 80s there was uh, that stupid hip hop movie House Party. And, uh, yeah. and, I, uh, and I was thinking of House Party Part 2, Pajama Jammy Jam. That was the, <laughs> the sequel and I kept hoping for that. Got it. I mean, that makes sense. You know, you, well, so like when you do like, so they're probably like what, like weekend or four or five day retreats. So since the 10 day, I did one seven day and I've done a bunch of two or three or four days. And then actually this October, I have another 10 day coming. That's great. All right. So do you feel like meditation and mindfulness has affected your practice of journalism and, and your anchoring on Good Morning America? If so, how would you characterize that? Well, you're about to get to the point in the book where it really does have a big impact on my mm. journalism. And well, on my I, in the book, I talk more about the impact on my anchoring, but I can also talk about the impact on, on my journalism. But yes, um, I, I made a switch and this this I go into in my book, a big career switch for five years, I was the anchor of the Sunday evening news on, on ABC. And then I, I moved to anchoring the weekend version of Good Morning America, so Saturday and Sunday mornings. And it was I was really bad at it. I mean, I was really bad. I'm not, not to say that I'm awesome at it now, but this was five years ago. So for the first 
two to three years of it, I was like actively terrible and just uncomfortable. And to go from an at, from an evening news, very staid environment in which I had a lot of control over the flow of the show to a much more loose, open formatted, extemporaneous situation, lighter content. I just, I couldn't, I didn't like the fact that I didn't have control over it. And there were all yeah. other people on the set uh, you know, my co-host, the meteorologist, there's a, somebody who comes on and reads the headlines. And so all these other people, and they could say whatever they want. I had no control of them. And I had yeah. to sort of figure out how to deal with that and then get us to a commercial break and make sure that we weren't uh, running out of time and blah, blah, blah. And I was, my internal reaction to this was to really tighten and, um, and to laugh in a forced, faked way. And um, it just it, it wasn't going well. And, right. and it took me a while to really apply the lessons of meditation to that. Because right. I was already meditating when I got the job. But I was bad for a long time, even though I was meditating. And it was really watching the show with my wife, who, P.S., doesn't meditate, but um, uh, likes that her husband's less of an asshole. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, who was saying, you know, we were watching the show and she was just pointing out how I was kind of so much more uptight on the show than I am in real life. And she was like, well, why can't you just do what you're always talking about in meditation, which is sort of just be right there for what's happening and respond to it uh, without reacting reflexively? I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I should follow my own advice. And mm. it's made me a much better. I mean, I still... I don't want to overstate my skill as a as an anchor. I still suck a, a, a bunch, but um, or, or say things that I regret, or don't you know, or miss opportunities uh, because I am not listening. But I'm much better at listening and paying close attention to whatever's happening right now, so that I can react in a spontaneous way. Um, yeah, and that makes me much more at ease, and I'm having fun, and I'm enjoying my colleagues. I'm not trying to control what they're saying i'm just i'm looking forward to what they're going to say and i'll react from as genuine a place as possible that is an, a lesson that can be applied well beyond the anchor desk i mean that's yeah. a very rarefied environment most of your listeners won't spend time on an anchor desk but we live in a world where we're not in control of much and we're in social interactions all the time and and we're, we're going to be better we're going to have better relationships if we're listening to what people are saying and responding in, in uh, sorry to use a sort of touchy-feely way, authentic manner rather mm. than trying to only say things designed to elicit a response that we hope for. Yeah. Um, to introduce a, a much more serious notion, we, we're having a real crisis in my household right now because our nanny suddenly lost one of her children. And uh, Jesus, yeah, I'm and it's sorry. Really sad. And it just happened. And to try to apply the lessons to, to this situation is really, it's been very useful to just let, you know, we've been talking to her on the phone and just to let her talk and not to try to fix it, um, but yeah. just to let her talk and, and to respond to whatever needs she may have and to try to anticipate a little bit what we can do to to alleviate any strain that we, you know, to pull any levers that we can to alleviate any strain, but mostly just to let her talk and listen as instead of just getting so uncomfortable that we're trying to fix everything. Yeah. Um, it's been, it's been very useful, although obviously it doesn't, doesn't mitigate any of her pain. No, but your point being it, it is challenging, surprisingly challenging to just let things be what they are sometimes and to be completely present with that, not try and change it, fight it, wrestle against it. And, as you say in your book, don't react, respond. 
Yeah, I mean, I stole that from somebody. I, I want to, uh, that's just a venerable uh, cliche, yeah. uh, meditation cliche. I like to point out that I have no original ideas. Uh, the, the, the book is like all, you know, me stealing ideas from other people uh, with, with attribution uh, yeah. and adding the word fuck a lot, you know. <laughs> that's right. I consider myself kind of a gateway drug to introduce skeptics to these people who I think uh, have uh, could add a lot of value to their lives, meditation teachers, who they might otherwise reflexively reject because of the manner in which so many meditation people talk. Yeah, that's awesome. So my, that goes to my next question. In 10% Happier, you tell, really, it's a story of self-discovery, but another way to think about your book is that it's one long process of deconstructing all the deeply embedded objections that you have, and I use that word you in quotes, to meditation. Before, obviously, the current explosion of, of research, meditation was considered woo-woo, flaky, and generally for the birds. But now that's changing rapidly. I think one really important thing that you accomplish through your story is what you're pointing to right now is that you objectify a lot of the cultural barriers embedded cultural barriers and obstacles to meditation through like humor and self-deprecation i feel you very effectively you make those objections transparent and i think universal and i was going to ask you how deliberate was that because i it sounds like from what you're saying that actually was pretty deliberate oh it was the whole point uh, yeah you know, i mean this i did not have a desire uh, to write, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that I'm, you know, a narcissistic um, anchorman, I did not have any real desire to write a memoir. Right. But but I realized what I did have a desire to do was to write a book. I I, I saw that there was an opening. Yeah. That, that there in in the market, so to speak, that meditation is really um, a very simple and secular and scientifically validated exercise for the brain, and that nobody was. Very few people were talking about it that way who had a platform. Um, right, and right. So I wanted to convince people to meditate. So really, the book is an argument dressed up as a memoir. Yeah. Um, I initially, when I was writing the book, my first drafts were much more sort of, um, uh, much less narrative and much more about the benefits of meditation, kind of like a polemic. And the parts that were narrative were the parts that everybody was re relating to. Yeah. I realized over time, okay, I'll just write a memoir and the moral of the story will be blazingly obvious. That's awesome. I felt that that came through in spades, but I don't think you need to be even a new meditator or a meditator on the fence to get value out of this book. Because I think you lay out, in the process, you kind of expose a whole cultural landscape around this that's really interesting and kind of you know, it also hones in on like, well, what is the basic core of the thing beyond like the promotion that Tolian or Deepak Chopra kind of smoke and mirrors that this kind of comes through the book? What's the essence of it? I think you do a good job at pinpointing that. Thank you. So another thing I thought in the book that you did a really nice job at modeling mindfulness in these very interesting ways, like particularly on the retreat when you and it wasn't just the retreat, you do this through the book, but you kind of, you show how you come into certain situations with assumptions about people and about situations. And then after the fact, you realize, actually, that wasn't true at all. And I was coming with, I was coming to this whole thing with a lens. And after the fact, you realize, wait, no, when I was just really there, 
it was completely different than, than what I thought it would be. So it was like, first it was what your mind thought and then what it, what it actually was. And I feel like that's so much of what mindfulness is about. And again, I'm curious, how deliberate was that? Yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. You know that Malcolm Gladwell book, Link, that talks about the wisdom of, of the subconscious, how yeah. we, that we, we make really good decisions or from our gut. I'm like yeah. anti-blink. Every assumption I had, every step of the way in the journey described in the book is ultimately turned on its head because yeah. I'm kind of like being a judgmental asshole and thinking that this is going to be bullshit or whatever, and it turns out that I'm wrong. I, that wasn't deliberate. It just actually happens, embarrassingly enough, to be the truth. It's true that as I stumbled, uh, like Mr. Magoo style, uh, through this journey, <laughs> I kept assuming that everybody I was running into was full of shit or annoying or whatever. And then I realized that I was the one who was annoying or wrong or whatever. I wish I could say it was a deliberate strategy, but I am quite naturally a buffoon, as, as it turns out. It is so effective at conveying because it, it, it really gives the kind of constant self-disclosure that comes with that. It makes the book incredibly, or it just makes the book very credible because it's obviously you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, it's it's this, it's not that, it's this, it's not that. And well, it, it, just to jump in, you know, yeah. you're making me th- I was having a conversation with, um, this just shows how not deliberate it was, but I was having a conversation after the book came out with a friend of mine who, well, he's many things, but one of his many hats is he's a gay rights activist. He had a term for it that I'm forgetting, but one of the most effective approaches that they've found in the, in the uh, LGBT activist community is to find people who used to have uh, homophobic ideas or attitudes and then realized that uh, their child was gay or lesbian or transgender and they changed their entire attitude. And having those people step forward as spokespeople really have, was one of the most effective techniques in changing mind they've found. And so, I mean, I didn't do this on purpose, but I, but he was saying that in some ways I'm playing that role with meditation. Absolutely. That, that makes a lot of sense. I like that analogy. I wanted to also act, I love the ask, I love the spirit of inquiry that infuses the book. You never stop drilling in. And obviously as a reporter, you're really all about drilling in to get to the meat of the story and the, and the nub of the issue. It feels to me in many ways like you turn that journalistic lens back on yourself or you applied it to your own process and trying to understand how meditation could really help you after that panic attack. Is that true, number one? And, and how do you see the inquiry that you are tracking in the book evolving? Like clearly the book isn't the end of the story. If anything, it kind of felt like the birth of something, the beginning of something that you know, you've, you've, uh, you've continued to pursue and that, uh, yeah, the story is unfolding, as they say. Yeah, uh, I have tried to really ramp up my meditation practice now that I'm not like spending all my time writing a stupid book. Um, yeah. And, you know, I have permission from my wife to go on uh, one long retreat a year. And I do a lot more. I quadrupled my daily practice mm. uh, in the last couple of months. I don't know if that'll last, but it's, it's at least my temporary goal. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of reading, a lot of listening to Dharma talks. And I just finished a course I was taking through the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. I'm going to do it another co- online course through Tricycle, which I think looks really promising. It's taught by my 
friend Andy Olensky um, mm. about early Buddhist texts. And my goal, I guess, is to infuse every moment of my life to the best of my ability with the practice so that the, the lines blur. And I'm kind of interested in, I don't know if you've ever heard this thought experiment that sometimes gets bandied around in Buddhist circles where people say, well, what would happen if you took an enlightened monk from the Himalayas, put him in New York City, gave him a wife and a kid and a job, how enlightened would he be then? Um, yeah. And I like the idea of reversing the experiment. Like it, I'm a guy nice. with a hardcore job and a wife and a kid and three cats. And can somebody in my position get enlightened? And what does that even mean? Yeah. So that that is really what I'm sort of interested in now. And and if it sounds like the beginning of a book, it may be. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm toying with that as we speak. That's awesome. That's a fantastic frame. I love that. And that kind of begins to answer my next question. I was going to ask, what were the effects of writing this book for you? Do you feel, and clearly it did, but do you feel it legitimized your interest in meditation in some new or deeper way? What was the response from your coworkers and your family? And like, personally, do you feel, yeah, do you feel a deeper sense of ownership in your meditation practice as a result. Well, clearly you did, you just answered that. But like in some real way now, this book qualifies you as a champion of meditation. Yeah, I, I definitely think I'm a champion. I, I'm def, I am a legit cha champion for meditation. Definitely yeah. not a champion of meditation. <laughs> uh, Good distinction. Yeah, and it also doesn't make me an expert in meditation. I'm, I'm, I would say at the end of the beginning, at best. Um, yeah. But so, and I'm not a teacher. I don't lead meditations or anything like that. But having said all of that, it's the most important professional development of my life. It was a huge risk, and I was yeah. really worried about it. In fact, I actively considered pulling the book six weeks before it came out when when they were already printed and sitting in a warehouse my, my mother sent me a panicked email saying this is going to destroy your career and i freaked wow. out and yeah it was a really close call and oh man and and now uh i'm incredibly glad i did it and to be able to get tweets from people who say that it, it helped them you know start meditating and and in fact we just launched a meditation app Joseph Goldstein and I just launched uh, an app called 10% Happier Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, where I do, I make the jokes and jo Joseph does the teaching. And it's really incredibly gratifying to hear from people like that. Wow, you inspired me to meditate. And now with the app where you're, you're actually teaching me how to do it. And it's phenomenal. And the response from my colleagues has been amazing. And I, I now work in an environment where we offer meditation classes uh, at ABC News. And That's amazing. A lot of my colleagues meditate uh, on air and off air. So it, it's phenomenal. That's amazing. All right. So can you tell us now, tell us about, give us a little bit more detail about the app and the course. I'd love if you could tell our audience all about those. And I, I just saw the short segment on ABC. It looks really exciting. Yeah. So, well, thank you. I was approached by a startup company in Boston called Change Collective to make 10% Happier into an app. And these guys are actually meditators, which is great. And so nice. they, they knew that we, we needed to make it legitimate and serious. So we brought in Joseph Goldstein, who uh, I'm sure will be a familiar name to many in your audience, who is one of the preeminent American meditation teachers, a yes. pioneer who brought uh, Vipassana to the West and founded the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, along with Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg back in the 70s. And, and he is my meditation teacher as well. I'm very lucky to be able to say that. Mm. Um, so what it is, is a two-week class that is designed to get you up and running, uh, and it's delivered on your phone. You can 
either get it in the Apple store or uh, if you go to 10percenthappier.com, you can get a version that will work on other phones. And every day you get a little video with either me or, or me and Joseph talking about an issue uh, related to meditation. And then you get a guided meditation from Joseph uh, on audio. Um, and then you have a, a live human being who will be your coach who you can text with at any time and ask questions and if you need encouragement, et cetera, et cetera, they're there for you. And we also have, you know, a guiding, your coach will be a, a, somebody who meditates and knows about the practice. But if you have a really complex question, we have on staff, Joseph Goldstein vetted meditation teacher who can answer deep, deep questions if you have them or something comes up. So we, we really feel like we're helping people on all levels get up and running with a meditation practice so that by the end of the two weeks, you're good to go. That is awesome. So this is all through the app. And so people can take the course through the app. Can they also take it online just on a laptop? You're asking me a question that I wish I knew the answer to. I think if you go to 10percenthappier.com, you can get a version that will work on any phone and may pro also work on your laptop. It's, it's just sort of a web-enabled thing. But you won't be able to text with your coach. Maybe there's an email. I, I don't know. I, I wish yeah, I could yeah. answer this question. But I can tell you that the, vis the vision is that this is an app slash portal platform would be a better word. Yeah, where we will add more courses um, and more content over time. So this is the first two week course. We'll do a second one and then we'll start addressing specific issues with teachers who really know something about a specific area like relationships or grief or sleep or productivity slash focus. And we're going to bring in, you know, the best teachers. And and again, this this goes to my view of myself as a gateway drug, as somebody who can make skeptics comfortable with the practice, bring in people who actually know what they're talking about and be the buffer. Yeah, that's awesome. This is all on the 10% Happier platform. Yes. Nice. And is this, so it's 10% it's Happier in partnership with the Change Collective. Yeah. Got it. But they're powering the, the thing, but it, the 10% happier brand is kind of what's up front. But the credit should go to them because they a lot of the credit should go to them because it was their idea to do this. Yeah. And uh, they're great guys. Um, and I think they're uh, a company that's doing a lot of interesting things. Yeah. And thanks to Ben for also just reaching out because he's the one who made this possible. And I, I will, in the show notes, everybody, I'm going to link up everything Dan's talking about, where you can find the app, where you can learn more about the Change Collective, and where you can buy Dan's book. Dan, is the best place for people to get that at your website or Amazon? What do you recommend? Yeah, Amazon's fine with me. Right. Yeah. I, I'm. Uh, my publisher gets mad when I say this, but I'm, I'm less interested in selling books and more interested in just encouraging people to meditate. And so if people want to buy a book, that's great. But mostly what I get jazzed about is encouraging people to start or continue meditating. Did you ever think that this was after the book? Did you think this was going to be part of the next chapter of your work? Oh, you know, I thought the book was going to be a massive failure. Um, when I was pitching the book to publishers, nobody wanted to buy it. So I was really during the whole torturous process of writing it, I was I had every reason to believe that it was not going to be a commercial success on any level. So I thought that the, when the book came out, it would do whatever it did. And then I would just go back to being a TV guy, um, which I continue to be. But now the whole 10% happier thing has kind of taken off in ways that I never thought it would. And, and it's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
And so for me is to figure out how to keep going with this in um, with integrity and to not miss opportunities, but also to push forward in a way that feels right. Fantastic. Well, Dan, I just want to thank you so much. One for, again, writing such a fantastic book. I love it. Everyone, I highly encourage you to go get the book. It's a fantastic read. Check out Dan's course and his new app with Joseph Goldstein. It's going to be worth it. Any final things you want to share? Any tips for new meditators, Dan, or or anything else before we jump off? Just don't forget the thing I always forget but, but it, you, you can't hear it enough, is that the whole game is to start again. If and when you get distracted during meditation, and it's not really an if, it's a when uh, you get yeah. distracted in meditation, just start again. And if, you, if your practice bottoms out and you stop practicing, just start again. There's no punishment. Start again. And I, I can't hear that message enough. Great. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Take care. Take care, Morgan. I hope you enjoyed my interview with best-selling author Dan Harris. If you would like to take Dan's course, buy his book, or learn about what he's up to, I've included links for all of that in the show notes. Also, the excellent folks over at Change Collective have made a special offer available to listeners of the One Mind Meditation Podcast you can get a 20% discount on the course, the 10% Happier course, by following the links in the show notes. Just go to aboutmeditation.com slash podcast and you can get that discount. That's aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast. Also, let me know how you like today's show. Head on over to iTunes and please leave me a rating and a review. It's super helpful And it's the best way to help other meditators discover our show. So you can do that at aboutmeditation.com forward slash iTunes. And today's show is brought to you by our Meditation for Life free guided meditations. Head on over to aboutmeditation.com and you can pick up two free guided meditations. You'll love it. Finally, let's end with a quote from Dan's meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein. He says, Our progress in meditation does not depend on the measure of pleasure or pain in our experience. Rather, the quality of our practice has to do with how open we are to whatever is there.